Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I would like for us to return again to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to be focusing our attention upon verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So much of what is taught in Scripture with regard to spiritual life parallels family life. Family life. Now I know not every individual has had a stellar family life. And I know that oftentimes Christians will have a problem when we're reading or we're studying a particular text that talks about the love of God the Father because that may not have been your experience in life to have a loving Father. But our Lord wanted us to be able to understand spiritual truths that are difficult for us to grasp unless there is some frame of reference that you and I have in life that we can look to and say, oh, okay, I get it. And so, in Scripture, we're taught that God is our Heavenly Father. That Jesus Christ is our Elder Brother. Christians are called brothers and sisters in the Lord. And together we are called the children of God. Israel is called the wife of God. And when Israel was in a state of disobedience and rebellion, idolatry and so on, she was referred to by the prophets as an adulterous wife. But when Israel found herself in obedience to the Lord... Serving the Lord, ministering in the name of the Lord, the prophets referred to her as the faithful wife. The church is called the bride of Christ in Scripture. And there are other such parallels throughout the Old and the New Testament. And again, these parallels are designed to help us understand the ideal, if not the reality in your life or in my life, at least the ideal of what God desires family life to be here in the flesh. But if not in the flesh, the reality of what family life can be in the Lord. What family life can be 
in the Lord. Salvation also parallels our physical life here in the earth. If you think about it, salvation is called the new birth. The new birth or being born again. Just as there are three phases in physical life, birth, living, and death, there are also three phases in spiritual life. Regeneration, sanctification, glorification. Now don't let these words intimidate you. Regeneration simply means salvation. It is to be born again. Sanctification simply means to be holy, to be set apart for God. And glorification simply means to be completely perfected, sinless, before the Lord God in heaven. We can rephrase these three dimensions, these three phases, with regard to salvation in this way. I am saved, I am being saved, and I will ultimately be completely saved. Beginning last Sunday and over the next several Sundays, we're going to be exploring the middle phase, the sanctification phase of salvation and what that really means and how that is really fleshed out in our lives. We're going to be looking at the doctrine of sanctification and don't be concerned about the word doctrine. I know there are people who don't like to go to church because they preach doctrine. Well, doctrine simply means what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches. The doctrine of sanctification, which really means the progressive work of God and man that conforms the Christian to the image of Christ in this life. That's what sanctification really means. Now, you may have been or maybe you have known someone after having been saved have wondered, all right, now that I am saved, what's next? What am I supposed to do? Now that I am a Christian, what is it that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life doing? Am I supposed to be a missionary? Am I supposed to be an evangelist? Am I supposed to be a Bible teacher? Am I supposed to be a preacher? Am I supposed to be a, mu a Christian musician? What is it that I am supposed to do now that I am saved? We'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Stand with me in honor of God's Word. 
as I read, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is the word of the Lord. We pray his blessing upon the reading of the word. You may be seated. Now, this text, these two verses in Philippians 2, deal with the process of sanctification. It answers the question, what am I supposed to do now that I'm saved? The goal of salvation, and we always need to have the goal in mind, no matter what you do as an individual or a member of the family or the head of the family, it's always a good idea to have a plan for your family. And I, I counsel couples who are wanting to be married and those that are having difficulty in marriage, I will ask them, what is your plan? What is it that you plan for your marriage? Where do you want to be five years from now, ten years from now, twenty-five years from now? What do you want to have accomplished when you celebrate your 50th wedding anniversary? What are your plans? And they'll talk about this and they'll talk about that and they'll give this idea and that idea, so on and so forth. And sometimes it's really all over the page. Sometimes the couple, they're not on the same page at all when they discuss what their plans are for this particular marriage. And I will bring them back from their discussion and ask them, what is your ultimate goal in being married? What is your ultimate goal for your family? What is your ultimate goal for your children, if God blesses you with children? What is your ultimate goal? The goal of salvation, quite frankly, is completely misunderstood among a lot of Christians nowadays. The goal of salvation is not to go to heaven. I know all of us who are Christian are looking forward to go, going to heaven. And maybe you're not a Christian today and you still have the desire to go to heaven. But going to heaven is not the ultimate goal of being a Christian. The ultimate goal of being a Christian is not to acquire eternal fire insurance. I want to be a Christian because I don't want to go to hell. Well, I applaud the motivation for considering Christian faith, particularly with the horrors of hell in mind, but that is not the ultimate goal of being saved. And being saved, being a Christian, is not to identify with a particular church. The ultimate goal of salvation is to be sanctified. It is to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he foreknew, and that's you, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He foreknew you. He called you. He predestined you. That you in salvation would live your life in the process of conforming your life to the image of Jesus Christ. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And again, Jesus is our pattern. In much of what we talk about here in this church with regard to living the Christian life and obedience and to the Lord and all of the other things, Christian family life, so on and so forth, Jesus becomes the primary example. Jesus was sent by God the Father to live a holy and righteous life and to give his life as the sacrifice for sin. That's why he came from heaven, was clothed in human flesh in his incarnation, and lived for 33 years on this planet, giving his life, ultimately giving his life on the cross of Calvary, shedding his blood so that you and I might have salvation in him. He was sent to live a holy and righteous life and to give his life, that holy and sinless life, as a sacrifice for our sin. We have been saved, if you are a Christian, we have been saved to live a holy and righteous life. Amen. And to give our life a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, in service to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And the Apostle Paul makes that very clear in Romans chapter one, chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, who is your reasonable worship, your reasonable service. As Jesus came to live a holy and righteous life, giving his life as a sacrifice for you and for me on the cross, so we who are saved are to live a holy and righteous life and to give our lives a living sacrifice in service to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, the Apostle Paul wrote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's salvation. That is salvation. That is regeneration. That is the new birth. He goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's sanctification. That's working out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And I could quote other passages of Scripture that underscore these same principles. You are saved, I am saved. 
not to sit in a pew and get sour and become sanctimonious and somehow, someday, some way get to heaven when it's all said and done. That's not why you were saved. You were saved for a divine purpose. And that is, as Paul said in Romans 8, to live your life conformed or being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means to embrace His attitudes in life. It means to pattern your life after His life, to, to perform the same works that He performed. And I'm not talking about miraculous things like raising the dead or turning water into wine or breaking two loaves of fish, uh, two loaves of bread and um, five loaves of bread, and I'll get it right here in a minute, five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 5,000 people plus their families. No. The work of Jesus Christ in this life, in the flesh, was to do the will of the Father. And for him, the will of the Father was to demonstrate the grace, mercy, and love of God in ministering with compassion to the needs of people who were lost. And quite frankly, that is what God has saved us to do as well. Do you, do you understand, do you realize, friends, that we live in a lost and spiritually dying world? Do you realize that? This very moment, there are hundreds if not thousands of people who are going off into eternity not knowing the love of God, not knowing the grace, the mercy of God, not knowing the salvation of Jesus Christ, and they are forever lost in hell. It is our responsibility in Christ Jesus to not let anyone in our circle of influence, not anyone in our friendship circles, not anyone in our circles of colleagues or whatever, to take that final journey into eternity without knowing Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. There are certain attributes that a Christian possesses when that individual is saved. Now, you need to understand this. You need to come to terms with this. There are certain attributes that a Christian possesses upon their salvation. These attributes are absolute. Now, I know if you're a millennial this morning, you don't believe in absolutes. I was in a discussion with one not a thousand years ago or a million miles away. And I was talking about certain truths and the individual said, well, I don't believe in absolutes. And I said, are you absolutely sure? I'm absolutely sure. And I said, well, I guess you believe in an absolute, don't you? <laughs> These are absolutes. Attributes that Christians have been given, that Christians are to realize in their lives. They are not conditional, they are not temporary, they are absolute. Number one, a Christian is justified before God. That means before God, if you're a Christian, God sees you as sinless. 
Number two, a Christian is sanctified before God. That means in the eyes of God, you are holy. You are holy. Third, a Christian is righteous before God. That means when God looks upon you, he sees you morally correct. Morally correct. And then a Christian will be glorified. Ultimately, finally saved. Without sin, without flaw, without weakness, but perfected in Christ Jesus. These are spiritual attributes. And again, they are absolute. They never change. They never will change. They cannot change because God has declared these things in your life. And He's declared you to be these things before Him. And because these things are declared by God, and because all of these are attributes of salvation, let's make the connection, let's connect the dots, because these are also attributes of salvation, and these are unchangeable, and these are not temporary, and these are not conditional, neither is your salvation. It is absolute. It is unconditional. It is permanent. Now God declares these things to be such in your life and in my life if you indeed are a Christian. However, and there's always a however, however, once saved, once saved, the Christian is tasked with living these spiritual absolutes out in their daily life. Living them out in their daily life. In other words... What God has declared me to be in Jesus Christ, I should demonstrate these things before others through Jesus Christ or because of Jesus Christ. In other words, these are the things that I possess because I am saved. But these are also things that I should be demonstrating on a daily base, basis before other individuals because I am saved. Because I am saved. Well, how do I do that? For the new Christian, how do, how do I, you know, how do I work out my salvation? How, you know, how do I apply all of this stuff in my life? Well, it's not overnight, because sanctification is not an overnight thing. It is a progressive work of God in you, and a progressive work of God with you, to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Well, how long is that going to take? For the rest of your life. For the rest of your life. When we cooperate with God in this progressive work that conforms us to the image of Christ, then we are being sanctified. And that has two aspects. And Paul makes it very clear here in these two verses. The first one I want us to look at. He says, first of all, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And then he makes this very emphatic. It is a command. It is an imperative. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, how many of you work out? That's about right. We understand what it means to work out, right? It means you go someplace, a gym, you pay so much money per month, and you go maybe once or twice during that month, and you exercise, you sweat, you pull muscles, you basically stand around and talk to other people who are there in the gym (laughs) trying to get on with their workout. But this is an interesting term that the Apostle Paul uses here in this verse, work out. Originally, in ancient Greece, this word meant, and it is one word in the Greek, it means to take what is hidden and bring it out to light. To take what is hidden and bring it out to light. And it was often used to describe what a miner does. Not one of these little guys here, but a miner. Someone who's involved in mining gold or silver or precious stones. And just, you know, think about it. Think about it. What does a miner do? A miner gets his tools and he begins to dig in the ground or in the side of the hill, thinking, believing that there is something hidden in that hill, hopefully a vein of gold or a vein of silver or some precious stones that he's going to discover. And when he discovers them, he doesn't leave them there in the mine, does he? Well, I guess he does. No, he doesn't. When he comes across that vein of gold, he brings that gold out of the mine. He brings it out into the light. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. You mean there is something in me that I'm supposed to bring out to the light? Absolutely. Here in this text, it simply means to bring salvation out to its ultimate and final conclusion. In other words, the gift of God, which is salvation, that He's given to you by grace, are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Salvation, which is God's gift, He has placed in your life. You are to flesh that out every day that you live. You are to bring that to light. You are to bring it to its ultimate conclusion. You are to bring it out to its ultimate fulfillment. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, wrote, This exhortation assumes human free agency in the carrying on the work of one's salvation. Salvation, listen friends, salvation is not passive. Salvation is not passive. It's not something you can say if somebody says, I, Are you saved? And you reach in your pocket and you say, Yeah, I'm saved. See? It's not passive. Salvation is active. It is active. You are, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, because you have been saved by grace through faith, then you are to perform the good works that God has ordained for you to do. To do the good works that God has ordained for you to do. We're saved for a purpose. 
And that purpose is to be conformed to the image of Jesus. It is to live out such a life that others will hear Jesus through our words and see Jesus through the way that we live and experience Jesus through the ministries that we conduct. John MacArthur writes, The salvation that is in you needs to be brought out all the way to its fulfillment, to its fullness. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to that again. Because this, it describes what sanctification really is. It describes this working out thing that the Apostle Paul talked about in verse 12. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us. So if you're a Christian, you have been reconciled to God. But he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus if you're a Christian. But it doesn't stop there in your life or in my life. We are to work toward bringing other people into that same relationship with God where they can be reconciled in Christ Jesus as well. God has declared the Christian sinless, justified. All right? So, how do we flesh that out? The Apostle Paul tells us, in Hebrews 12, verse 1, we need to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and we should run with endurance the race that is set before us. We are to run with endurance the race that is set before us, laying aside every weight that prevents us from doing that. And I don't know what that easily besetting sin is in your life. I know what it is in my life. But whatever that easily besetting sin, whatever it keeps you from being what God wants you to be, from doing what God wants you to do, the Apostle Paul says, set it aside. And get out on the track and start running the race that God has set before you. God has declared us holy. If you're a Christian, sanctified, holy. But the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, rest your hope fully upon the grace that has to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Let me put this in practical terms that you and I can understand. When we talk about being holy... I know some people get the idea that we're supposed to be some kind of, you know, superhuman person spiritually. You know, that we're to be uh, pious. We're to be above sin. That we are, you know, kind of like a Mother Teresa if you're uh, a female or, um, or her husband if you're male. 
I don't know, I can't think of anybody male that's holy. (laughs) Holiness is a very important attribute in a Christian's life. But it doesn't mean that you spend your life in an ivory tower like a monk reading the scriptures all day long, praying all day long, chanting all day long, taking the sacraments every day, doing all of these kinds of things in your conclave. No. Uh Uh-uh. That's not holiness at all. To be holy means to be separated from worldliness, separated from the things of the world. It means to stop doing what the sinful world is doing. Stop participating in the things that an ungodly, unrighteous, unholy world continues to do. Don't be a part of those things that are against God. God has declared the Christian to be morally correct. To be morally correct. Righteous. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. What is sin? It is anything that does not please God. It is anything that does not please God. Now, you can put all kinds of titles and labels and names to it, but basically sin is anything in your life that does not please God. And Paul says, don't let anything that displeases God reign in your life. Reign means take priority. It's a king who rules over a kingdom. Don't let anything that displeases God take control of your life. That you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace." God has saved you and that salvation is not a license to go back and sin. Now these, and there are many other things, but these are the good works which God has prepared beforehand that you and I should walk in them. These are the good works that God has saved us to do. And they reflect the inherent nature, the new nature, that Jesus Christ has given us when he saved us. They have to be fleshed out in our lives. But, you may say, that's an impossible task that Jesus has called me to do. I don't think I can do that. I'm still in the flesh. And that flesh is subject to sin and to moral weakness, and to spiritual weakness. And you're right. 
you're right. That's why Paul gave us verse 13. Look at it. For it is God who works in you. God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Now this is a tremendous verse. A tremendous verse because it reveals the source and the power of our victory over sin, over the flesh, and over the devil. This verse answers the question, how can I do all things through Christ who strengthens me? How can I do all things through Christ who strengthens me? I want you to note, first of all, in verse 13, it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you. Now I want you to note that the word work here in verse 13 is not the same word work in verse 12. In verse 12, the word work out means to take what is hidden and to bring it to the light. The word work here in verse 13, it means to empower. To empower. And because it's in the present active, it is the continual power of God working in you. As we are to continue in working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as we are to continue to take what God has invested in us, the gift of God's salvation in us, and we're bringing it out in life on a daily basis, we're fleshing it out in life on a daily basis, we're demonstrating these things before others on a daily basis, so God is working in us on a daily basis to empower us to do exactly that. He is empowering us to do exactly that. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. Now, how do we know that that, that works? How do you know that that works? How do you know that you can trust in the word of the Lord to do that? How do you know that the Holy Spirit is actually going to do that in your life? Well, look who Jesus is talking to in Acts 1.8. He's talking to his disciples. And those disciples, 50 days earlier, when Jesus was being tried falsely and being crucified, they were nowhere to be found. They were hiding for fear of their own lives. They were afraid the Romans were going to arrest them and crucify them just like they had crucified Jesus. These were individuals who were not stand-up men. When Jesus needed them most to be of comfort to him and to rally around him, they were nowhere to be found. Now, when the Holy Spirit of God comes upon these men, you couldn't shut them up. They went everywhere talking to people about Jesus. They braved danger after danger, threat after threat to go and to talk to people about Christ, to minister to individuals in the name of Jesus. 
They risked shipwreck. They risked imprisonment. They risked death to go out and to speak the name of Jesus. And when the same chief priests and elders that crucified Jesus on the cross went to these disciples and said, we don't want you teaching about this Jesus anymore. And the idea behind that was, because we'll do to you what we did to Jesus. What was their response? These same chief priests and elders were put on their heels by these disciples who said, ain't going to do it. We are not going to stop preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. And even when they were beaten, arrested and beaten, they said, we're not going to stop talking to people about Jesus. The Christian. The Christian is in a cooperative work with the Holy Spirit to live the Christ life. He will empower you to do what God saved you in Christ Jesus to do. He will empower you to do that because it is God who works in you. We can't achieve the goal, of, we cannot achieve the goal of being. Conform to the image of Jesus Christ without the empowering work of the Holy Spirit of God. It cannot be done. But we must yield to the Holy Spirit and His empowering if we're going to be effective as ministers of the salvation that He's entrusted unto us. And I want you to note a second thing here. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And again, this is a great verse because what it has in the original language just doesn't translate over into the English. It is God who empowers the Christian regarding the Christian's will. Not God's will here, but the Christian's will. And the word will here refers to one's desires. It is the Holy Spirit of God that works in your will, your desires, your want to, if you will. It is the will or the desire of the Christian. And here's the wonderful thought about this. It is the Holy Spirit who stirs up the desire in the Christian to live the Christ life. Amen. It's the Holy Spirit who stirs up the individual Christian to live the Christ life. And what's more, the desire to live a sinless life, a holy life, a morally right life is also empowered by the Holy Spirit because he says, Paul says here, it is God who works in you both to will and to do. So he stirs up the desire to live for Jesus and he empowers you to live for Jesus. And there's the paradox that we talked about last Sunday in the Bible is filled with paradoxes. Is it God who works in me to live the Christ life? Or am I supposed to work with Him in living the Christ life? Which is it? It's both. It's both. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit's working in you. And you must work with the Holy Spirit in order for that 
to be done in you. And then he caps it off by saying, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What is his good pleasure? His good pleasure is simply his perfect will for your life. And that's not going to be the same as the person sitting next to you. God has a specific perfect will for your life. And if that will is going to be perfected, if it's going to be performed, then you have to yield to the Holy Spirit of God who stirs up your desire to live the Christ life and then empowers you to go out and live the Christ life. And again, this is a continual process. It, you know, it's not on one day and off the next. It's not that you do this for six months and then you take a break. No, this is a continual process in your life and in my life. Every single morning when we wake up, we put on our work boots and we get busy in the kingdom of God, fleshing out those wonderful perfect attributes that he's placed in our lives because he has saved it. Now, you may not have the desire. You may not have the desire to do God's good pleasure, to do God's will for your life. Well, then you need to pray that the Holy Spirit will stir that up in you. You need to pray that the Holy Spirit will give you that desire. Because I know some of us, we go flat from time to time, don't we? Some of us, we get tired, don't we? We get weary, don't we? We don't want to go out again and, and go into that mine and, and start mining out those things that God has placed within us and show it before others. We, we, we want to just take a break. And that desire just kind of fizzles out in us. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit of God will keep that desire hot within each and every one of us. And you may not have the power to do so. You may very well say, well, I'm old. You know, I'm beyond 30. So, you know, I can't, I can't do that anymore. I know people don't like me much when I tell them, well, thank you, dear. Especially the elderly people when I say, you know, there are certain things that you can be doing for Christ. You know, you've not been put out to pasture. There are phone calls that you can make. There are cards that you can write. There are certain things that you can do for Christ. Oh, preacher... You don't know what it's like. <laughs> and then I mentioned Moses. Moses didn't get started until he was 80. And when he was 120 years old and God compelled him up on Mount Nebo to lay down his life, Scripture says that his eyesight didn't diminish and his physical strength hadn't abated. He was just as much a man at 120 as he was when he was 40. How can that be? It's the Holy Spirit who energizes the individual to do the work that God has called him or her to do. One final thing. 
And we'll close. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I need to come back and remind myself, it's not me that's out here doing what I do. It's Christ in me that does what I do. And he, according to Paul in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, as I continue to work out that which God has placed in my life, He will continue to empower me to do that. He will continue to stir up the desire in me to do that. He will continue to be the impetus in me, the motivation in me that sends me out again to do that. It's not I, Paul says. It's Christ in me. Christ in you is the assurance of glory. Christ living his life in and through you is the life of faith that the Christian lives day by day that pleases God. So, beloved, if people are going to see Jesus in this lost and dying world, in this world gone mad with power and greed, If this world is going to see Jesus, if they are going to know Jesus, then they must see Him and they must know Him through those who are living for Him. They must see Him, they must know Him through those who are living for Him. That's what the sanctified life is really all about. But... We're not done yet. There's still much, much more that we're going to unpack, but not today. We'll save that for a later time. Stand with me as David comes and leads us in a song, and we will be dismissed. That's what I kept thinking as I'm hearing him share the truth this morning. Wow. This morning you may, if you're aware of God, but you're uncertain if you have a relationship with him, I'm going to ask that don't leave today. I will be waiting for a little bit. If you have questions, don't leave without knowing for certain that you know Jesus Christ as we sing this song because this is where it begins all to Jesus I surrender all to him I freely give I will ever love and trust him in his presence Daily live, I surrender.
It is our joy to have Chuck Stice with us here this morning, and he has asked that we gather around and lay hands on him and pray uh, that God will be with him in this time of his physical illness. And so I'm going to ask the elders of the church if you'll come, deacons and pastors of the church, come on up here. Chuck, come on up here. And I'll ask everybody else to just reach out and take the hand of someone next to you. Come on, my friend. Careful. Yes. Let's lay hands. Father, we want to be obedient to all that you've asked us to do. And in your word, you tell us, if there are any sick who are among you, let them call for the elders, that they may lay hands upon the individual and pray, asking you, Lord God, for your perfect will to be done. And so, Lord, we have gathered round our dear friend, our brother in the Lord, our fellow servant, who has been diagnosed, Lord God, with a very, very serious cancer situation. We ask, Lord God, that you will touch. And if it be your perfect will for Chuck, that you will remove the cancer. We believe in you. We trust in you to be able to do that. Scripture tells us that Jesus went about healing people from leprosy and demon possession and lameness and blindness and deafness. Lord Jesus, we believe that you're still in the healing business today. Amen. And so we call upon you to look with grace and mercy upon our dear brother and restore to him, Father, health that he may be able to continue to minister the name of Jesus Christ to others. Yes. Need a handkerchief. And we pray this to your honor and to your glory and to the benefit of thank our you. brother and his family in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. amen. and amen. God bless you, my friend. Amen. Amen. We are dismissed. Amen. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.